All right. Hello. Can anyone, uh, anyone hear me? Um, coming in live January 25th. Yes. This is my first live since, uh, since the holiday period, so I'm a bit rusty. Um, hopefully, there's a few people around. Um, I'm going to do a little impromptu conversation around real estate, where the real estate market is headed, growth potentials for 2022, um, really talk about some of the ideas around real estate into 2022. Uh, it's going to be another big year in real estate, so pretty excited to talk property, uh, pretty excited to um, bring you some ideas around property. Hey, James, um, hopefully you're hearing me okay. Thanks for tuning in. Um, so I'm going to spend the next sort of 30, 35 minutes really going over real estate. Um, it's not going to be a quick one today, so if you're up for an impromptu little webinar um you've come to the right place hey guys hey allison wesley brendan thanks for um thanks for tuning in brendan's asked about interest rates uh will they be rising will migration once again kill off wage growth and uh and of course make interest rates weak where are we headed into 2022? Well, I really wanted today to be a little bit of a uh, conversation more about opportunities for 2022, um, really where we can make money buying real estate, what that might look like, where the opportunity markets are, where the markets are when it comes to uh, making money if you're buying. Obviously, if you've already bought, if you bought in 2020 or 2021, probably information I'm going to share is a little bit specific around buying activity into 2022. And of course, what that can translate to is of capital growth for your real estate. So you might get some interest um, out of what's going on today. Um, if you haven't bought and 2022 is your year, you may actually enjoy today's conversation piece. I've got a few slides. Um, hopefully you can see them okay. Um, I'm going to uh, go through about 50 different slides on really some of the ideas around how to make money if you are buying real estate in 2022. Um, certainly, obviously, when it comes to macro and micro uh, information around, uh, you know, where the market will go and the ups and downs of real estate, um, I'll definitely come back and talk to you further about some of that. But overall, I think most economists agree that growth is going to be a continued thing in 2022. Perhaps not getting the 30% price uplift that uh, some suburbs got in 2021, but certainly uh, we don't see any short-term headaches for the real estate marketplace, despite things like Omicron. Uh, we are certainly thinking that the real estate market is going to continue to grow. And so, obviously, that means uh, prices will continue to to increase, which, um, you know, is defying some logic out there at the moment. Certainly, some places are very, very expensive. So, uh, I'm going to talk to you about a few growth models that I see into 2022. It's not the entire growth models that are out there, but Certainly, uh, I'll go through about four or five of them and, and you guys can make your own opinions. Um, probably the first growth model I, I'm seeing is definitely the idea if you spend more in real estate at the moment, you certainly make more. And if you can find those properties which are really built to perform in the marketplace, um, you can do really, really, really well. And Often we talk about A-class properties for real estate investors. Usually that's broken down into three categories, the land, the location, and the building itself within or on the land and within the location. And generally when we look at real estate, you know, there's kind of A-grade stock, B-grade, C-grade, D-grade real estate. And of course, uh, the growth model around some of the better real estate in the marketplace 
is outperforming capital growth on the less, uh, well, the more inferior stock in the marketplace. So when we consider what that may mean, it's the idea of good improvements and good economics ultimately is a good decision in real estate. If you have a sort of B-grade building or D-grade building and good economics, um, what you'll end up finding is when growth kind of at a market level stops, it can actually decline on you. So the best improvements, the best locations, the best land, the best building, obviously get that more A-grade element when it comes to property investment. And of course, good economics, um, 2022 overall is going to be a fairly good year for for property. Um, In fact, you know, it's fair to say the media is already picking on 2023. because 2022 seemingly is going to be a strong year when it comes to properties going up in value. Now, I won't get into the uh, the science of that because I don't mind a bit of a counter cycle. I don't mind if things go down in value in real estate. I personally um, like both upward swings and downward swings when it comes to real estate because um, I enjoy the uh, professional side of buying property. But overall, uh, it's fair to say we are going into a marketplaces where uh, we need to consider some of uh, the micro growth elements. And one way to get micro growth is this idea that you buy something, it's, uh, it's better than the rest of things on the market, therefore it gets a, a high level of growth. So obviously... There are three different ways to look at real estate, price, cost, and value. They are different things. Um, You know, price is different to cost and cost is absolutely different to value. Price is obviously what people will pay. Cost is what it costs to produce something. The value is kind of what uh, else a property can bring to either the community, the market, and what really people see as value. Generally, in real estate, if there's less of something, people see more value in that. If something's um, of a better standard, people see more value in that. And so um, really, when we analyze the capital growth rates of real estate at the moment, it's generally what people are seeing more value in is getting more levels of capital growth. That can be from, uh, again, a land proposition point of view, a location proposition point of view, and a building proposition point of view. uh, They're the kind of three elements when it comes to assessing A-grade real estate. So uh, when it comes to the outcomes of the idea of finding real estate, which is high quality. Um, Again, you can look at the land, you can look at the location, and of course, you can look at the build quality. And quite often, a good way to cheat the system for property investors, because property investors generally shop on a bit of a budget, if you like, is the idea of designing something, renovating something, or buying something which is high-quality new build design to begin with. Um, And this kind of helps ticks the boxes when it comes to scarcity. So the idea of great design is driven around three elements, providing obviously really good shelter to someone. So you're attracting someone who wants high-quality shelter, good tenants. Uh, culture, the idea that good design brings better appeal, generally better uh, human um, people, uh, the idea that better design also brings with it at a suburb level, you know, just better culture, right, Better a better way of living. And, of course, design is also this element where you manifest wealth out of creating design from real estate, or you store wealth. Of course, uh, given 2023 may see the real estate market soften and correct, 
The idea of storing wealth in something is of interest to many investors at the moment. So the idea of, for example, architecture and design is very much not only making money, but storing or keeping that money very, very, very safe. And so one of the micro growth uh, systems in the market at the moment, which is very, very popular, a lot of rich people are doing this at the moment, is storing wealth in A-grade assets of high caliber design. And so what, uh, what it kind of ends up being is a liquidity spec- spectrum. So the scarcer your real estate is, the more liquidable it is. And obviously what that ultimately means, the faster you're going to sell it, the faster you're going to get your money back. Now, there's certainly been periods in Australian real estate where it's taken you know, over a year to sell real estate. Real estate by its nature as an asset is not liquid. Uh, if you think of the liquid assets, cash in the bank is very liquid. If you think of bonds, very liquid. Even the stock market and the crypto market is, is very, very liquid. Obviously, the crypto market is a lot more volatile than, for example, the real estate market. The most illiquid asset class, if you like, is businesses. Businesses are uh, hard to build and even harder to sell because they're quite often tied to the personalities inside the business. So real estate sits down the spectrum when it comes to being a liquid asset. It is a very illiquid asset. But the better your property is when it comes to its land, its location, or its build or designed, it fundamentally uh, the better liquidity you're going to get when it comes to real estate. So if we look at some of the past designs of Australian real estate, we can see both uh, illiquid and very liquid real estate when it comes to the asset class of real estate, if you like. Now, uh, I'll show you some architectural types that have uh, been used over the years in Australian real estate. You'll probably naturally notice the ones which are far more liquid than the ones that would seemingly be a lot harder to sell, right? So we can go back to sort of some of the the pre-war and, sorry, post-World War I uh, and post-World War II housing in Australia. You can see some of these uh, quintessential little bungalows. Now, again, they sell but they're not necessarily scarce. They're not something which people, uh, you know, are, 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 are seeing themselves as a manifestation of wealth. Uh, they're just an asset, an illiquid asset in the real estate market. Uh, if we were to look at, for example, early project homes, you know, there's not a lot of a lot of light in the homes. They were built as three-bedroom, one-bathroom. Again, um, they are not great examples of liquid real estate. They would be an example of illiquid real estate. Now, remember, most real estate is illiquid to begin with. However, the better your land is, the better your location is, and the better your build standard is, the more liquid your real estate becomes. So for a lot of real estate out in the market, the market sees it more like a share stock than it does even a real estate asset. Why? Because it's got some foundation around its design, but also, um, you know, its location quite often and its... uh, its land content, right? So if we were to look at this Federation turn of the century home, um, which is in typically Sydney and Melbourne, uh, Queensland has this version, but they're quite often called Queenslanders. Um, You'll find that this is a very liquid asset. This is very, very fast to sell. And the reason being 
is it's rather unique. It's rather interesting. It's got great design features to it. The build standard is very, very, very good. And of course, this is where you get this situation of the flight quality coming to assets like this. Of course, um, you know, if we track the capital growth of many of these federation style properties, they've all ballooned in value. They're millions and millions of dollars now. But the interesting part is, even though, you know, a home like this in, uh, in you know, Melbourne might be $2 million, um, the reality is someone is ultimately going to be richer than the person that holds this asset and will pay more for it. And there's kind of no reason it can't become $3 million. Again, the idea of flight to quality is this, is this idea that we're looking for interesting assets either through land, through build, or through lake location. So you can look at, for example, some of the more contemporary homes that are on the market today. And uh, as a property investor, you, you are capable of designing homes like this, maybe not as lavish in land size, but nonetheless, very, very plausible to create liquid contemporary homes today. Again, all of that means is they're the first ones to sell. They've got the tightest days on the market. If they go to auction, they have the most people coming to the auction. And of course, what that ultimately does is lead to price movement on assets like this. Again, if we were to look at the apartment market, and of course, a lot of investors buy in the apartment space and there's no right or wrong around that. There's just the conversation around the apartment market, like the housing market, is a very two-tiered marketplace. So you've got high-quality new construction, you've got low-quality new construction, and then you've got the established marketplace. And of course, uh, quite often when it comes to the idea around um, the apartment market, broad stroke conversations will be made, uh, apartments don't grow in value, that that's not true at all. You've got to very much approach the apartment market with the idea that the A-grade real estate is what you want. And of course, uh, I think we've all heard stories of the A-grade apartment with really good views um, in a really good location, in a really good building, making people a lot of money. Um, and I just saw some statistics of one today, which has risen $500,000. So again, the design here and the architecture behind this design, this is a 1950s Cold War cluster architecture. It's illiquid. It's an illiquid piece of real estate. It'd be very, very hard to sell if we go back to the uh, the scale of liquidity. You can see on the spectrum, uh, real estate being very, 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 very hard at times to get your money back out of it. And if we go to something like this, uh, very hard to get your money out of it. Um, can you guys just put in the chat, just making sure you guys can hear me okay? Give me a thumbs up or something like that. I don't know, Alison, you're always around. Um, just making sure that you guys are enjoying this and, and hearing this uh, come in loud and clear. Um, just want to make sure. Well, hopefully you are. I don't know. No one's, uh, no one's chatting with me. All right. Um, the next uh, sort of product type, if you like, is a quintessential um, quintessential red brick building. Now, again, when we look at this particular uh, part of the marketplace, it was built as a mass production piece of real estate in its period, right? And I'm probably going to offend some people with this statement, but I actually think this uh, this market, if you like, is one of the most illiquid markets in the in the country. It is very very um, it is a very 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 
uh, past its use by date product for the marketplace. So again, when we think about this idea of flight to quality, uh, this is something which is in the marketplace for the most part past its uh, use by date. And if we go back to the history of this architecture, um, they call it contraception boom architecture. It was kind of, um, you know, driven around the idea that, uh, that um, you know, people are, uh, lifestyles are changing and all of a sudden, you know, people didn't need large family homes. So they uh, would uh, create these red brick buildings all around sort of Sydney and, and of course, you know, just about every city. And again, um, when we look at the history of design, it's a very flawed piece of real estate in my view. It's not standing the test of time. Now, if we go back and look at something that is standing the test of time, we can see that the A-grade nature of this asset still appeals today. Uh, I think something like this into the future would still appeal today. This, of course, is not appealing today. It hasn't stood the test of time. Red brick era, not appealing today, not standing the test of time. And of course, we've had a few eras of apartments. Uh, we can go back to, for example, the Spanish mansion, very illiquid piece of real estate. A lot of these today falling down, if you like, and uh, just don't make, in my view, very, very good assets when it comes to owning the A-grade stuff, which of course, um, which of course, uh, I think uh, is the best stuff to own if you can. Uh, again, we've seen a lot of this type of product come to market over the years. Again, it's it's not high quality apartment design. It is it is low quality apartment design. Um, and again, it's a, it's an illiquid piece of real estate. So when uh, the real estate market slows, this stuff is a lot harder to sell. And of course, when the real estate market goes backwards, uh, this is the stuff which you start to see the real estate uh, values drop on, right? And so the counter argument is, well, you know, why wouldn't we go out if we are shopping for an apartment? find ourselves something which is more liquid. And this is, of course, where you get this kind of two-tiered marketplace. Now, again, this is this is one which I show quite often. I own a property in this building. Um, it's won multiple architecture awards around the world. Um, it's a mixture of sort of new and art deco as a, as a genre, I guess you would say. Um, it is put in a marketplace where there is no single style dominant um, to the apartment market. So what that fundamentally means is you can walk down the street and you can see 10 different apartment complex. One is going to be really, really beautiful and, and unique. The other nine aren't. And uh, again, good designs, better builds, kind of create better capital growth, if you like. And so I always teach there are three design logics when it comes to the idea of understanding this stuff. The first one is behavioral design logic, which is just the idea that uh, if you can bring a certain attribute or behavior to the real estate through the build, and people will see their life almost um, improving by virtue of a behavior um, allowing, you know, a better life, okay? Now, to explain that, I might just show you this picture. The behavior here is having a view, right? Um, having a, a massive vista. And so, again, what behavior does that create? Well, sitting, looking um, in a peaceful, humanistic space. And again, this is the stuff which creates a lot of wealth for property investors. Then we've got this idea of reflective energy, which is just the concept that if something looks and feels good, if it looks better than the rest, people kind of pay more for it. And it's no different to as to why people pay more for a 
you know, Gucci handbag, right? It's just reflective energy. Then, of course, functional energy. People see beauty and functionality. If so, if something is the right size, it's the right flow, it's got the right frontage, it's got the right um, humanistic experience inside the property, it will do very, very, very well. And, of course, again, this is where you you see a completely different typology come into the marketplace, a very undersupplied, A-grade apartment marketplace. Um, again, you know, something which stands out from the crowd, which ticks the boxes of A-grade, which is location, uh, build quality, and, and land. Where is the land? And so this, for example, is built on top of a park. So it's got very good land. Um, third place value, if you like. And so when we look at some of the ideas around design, um, the ideas around design uh, absolutely showcase that properties will make more if they're better designed. Now, case in point by Domain, which released an article on uh, August 20th, 2021, two properties, same building, one um, had a renovation by virtue of some high-quality interior architectural design. One property uh, was left as its original form. And one, the architectural buyer, if you like, owned the property for six years and the uh, one that didn't do anything owned the property for seven years. So they sort of bought it, um, similar similar periods, similar money, but the results completely different. Uh, the person with the architectural highly designed asset got a 300 and I think it's $360,000 uplift on their property compared, compared to the one which was left rather homogenous and boring and, and didn't bring some of this behavioral, reflective, or functional design logic to the asset. So uh, obviously the person who renovated had to come up with the money to renovate. And of course, uh, if you can avoid renovation by buying well in the beginning, um, then of course, again, you're going to get a better form of capital growth. And Domain tracked the capital growth rates of the architectural property next door to uh, the non-architectural property. Same unit complex, same floor plan, same, same everything, just one with higher design benefits, one with lower design benefits. And the capital growth rate was completely different. The High designed asset had a capital growth rate of around 9.7% over the period of its ownership. And uh, the, the, the homogenous one around 5%. So again, um, the point of the conversation is sometimes you've got to, you know, turn a, um, you know, a, a lemon into lemonade. Or if you just want to avoid all of that and not do these kind of large-scale renovations. It's just a matter of finding some of the A-grade assets in either housing, uh, townhousing, or even the apartment section to convert on. So where I see uh, 2022, certainly this type of stock, if you can get your hands on it, flight to quality, build to perform, it's all about shortages. Uh, there is no very limited amount of stock like this that comes to market. When it does come to market, it's snapped up pretty quickly. But if you can get it as an investor in the you know appropriate price point for you, then it's worth absolutely doing. Um, what are you investing in? And this is the idea. Well, in 2022, you know, when it comes to real estate, we want shortages, right? We want um, there is a shortage of high-quality designed property in the new section of the market out in the marketplace. Now, just want to be clear, not all new builds are good. Um, there's certainly um, the majority are not 
Um, the majority are low-cost new builds, very specky. And uh, that's why I think, you know, if you do find something that is more scarce to the marketplace, it's certainly fast forward 20, 30, 40 years. Um, the question is, you know, will you be looking back on an asset that looks like this, you know, or an asset that kind of looks like this or this, right? And um, of course, the, the, the concept is if you buy some of the, the more micro opportunities in the marketplace, you can, you can fundamentally do, do really, really, really well. So um, I guess the next one for me, the next sort of growth model, if you like, when it comes to real estate is this idea of lifestyle for profit. And uh, I think this one, you know, was well covered in 2020 and 2021, but certainly the suburbs where you can live, work and play, where there's uh, a good level of ability to, to do some uh, ideas around knowledge, wellness. Uh, movement. These are the suburbs which are highly prized today. And of course, um, something I've written about for six, seven years now, but ultimately be proving to be, you know, worth its weight in gold. And again, suburbs which just offer this kind of ability to potentially go down the beach, but also work from home, but also be close to the city. They're, they're, they're highly prized, highly prized. Um, suburbs where you can pop down to a great coffee uh, precinct, a great um, community, and then, you know, work a little bit from home, work a little bit from work, highly prized. Uh, suburbs where you can go into nature and then go home and work and then pop into potentially the office or a nearby employment zone, just highly prized. And again, um, when it comes to micro growth, this is the stuff which is just going to fare very, very well, whether it's 2021, whether it's 2022, whether it's 2023, 2024, whether interest rates go up. This is the, the kind of dynamic that a lot of people want. And again, the live, work, play concept needs to be driven around the idea of jobs. and. There are many um, areas around Australia where really there are no jobs, but certainly people are living there. And of course, um, the elephant in the room, if you like, is, well, um, if there is a downturn in the jobs market, will people continue to stay in more remote parts of Australia to live this live, work, play lifestyle? Um, if all of a sudden they need to go and find a job, will it um, just completely always be digital? And so in economics, um, there are some big economic uh, jobs within the economy, uh, the banking sector, the finance sector, the insurance sector, the property sector, the health sector, the education sector. And so generally speaking, I prefer to consider more more critical bigger areas to to do lifestyle investing um and the reason being is of course uh the knowledge part of this matrix which is jobs so uh live work play i guess if you like is about investing in shortages um it is about investing in the idea that um there is only so much of this stuff to go around, right? And you know, a friend of mine recently spent an obscene amount of money, obscene amount of money to buy in a suburb, which was a live, work, play suburb. And, you know, he rang me and asked me, you know, should he, should he go ahead with this? And I had to sort of say, well, you know what? Like there are only so many live, work, play suburbs in a city like Sydney. Um, and there is no reason more wealth won't come to a suburb which is highly prized. Even though it's expensive now, it's really a lot of money in this world and there's no reason why it won't be more expensive into the future. And so when it comes to this concept of live, work, play, it is really about the idea of shortages, lifestyle scarcity, 
uh, everything within 20 minutes, employment scarcity, a little mistake there. It looks like I need to uh, fix that one. But that's as, it really as simple as it needs to be. And I think most people listening today would kind of, kind of get that, that, you know, if you live in a nice street, you've got a park down the end of the road, you've got a beach 5, 10, 15 minutes away, you've got a lot of options today when it comes to the value proposition of your asset. Remember, there's price, cost, and value. And again, location brings a lot of value. So if you can bring or buy real estate, whether it's an apartment or house or a townhouse, and it's got uh, a big tick for location, you're going to get the A-grade location score. Now, remember, to get an A-grade score or an A-plus, you want really good build, really good location, and a really good, uh, basically, um, position or land where your position or your uh, your land is. And, of course, um, you know, sometimes you can't get all three because of the price, but if certainly you can bite off one of them, either through flight to quality or if you go into a more location principle of buying, um, this is where, you know, the live, work, play suburbs are doing really, really well. Now, as a property investor, we often try and buy affordable real estate. And uh, it's a big challenge for property investors today because to be in a property investor, you probably want a, you know, a 4%, 5% rental return. Um, you want the mathematics of the real estate to work for you. You want it to be affordable. Um, and the challenge is affordable real estate doesn't necessarily match where there is this idea of, uh, you know, live, work, play, livable suburbs. And of course, big part of my job, if you like, is trying to find these suburbs where you basically get very affordable properties in a very livable area. And to understand that, that is really the supply and demand gap. So when we look at where there is most demand and least supply, and if you can afford affordability and livability, you're going to find this thing which is called aspiration. And aspiration generally leads to higher prices. And so what we often find is these kind of lifestyle suburbs, if you like, are very, very hard to supply. And quite often it's, uh, it's again, a game of, um, you know, finding these undersupplied suburbs, which are affordable at the moment, but into the future, they're just, they just won't be. But they won't be a sawtooth marketplace. In other words, they're affordable now. They won't be in the future. Someone richer than you is going to come along and buy it off you. But uh, because someone richer is coming, um, potentially after that, someone even richer will, will come after that. And, of course, these are the markets you want to get into as a, as a location if you can afford it. And today, just to give you, I guess, some ideas around pricing, some of the affordable stock in highly prized livable suburbs, you're probably starting with about a $700,000 mark today minimum um, for these type of suburbs. But again, they become priced out because what ultimately happens, it becomes a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy as the investors are chased out of the suburb because they can't no longer afford it as first home buyers are chased out of the suburb as they can no longer afford it then the idea of building lots of stock in the suburb becomes very volatile for stock producers uh, for example developers because they don't have a large part of the mass market to work within and so they generally have to design the properties for owner occupiers and of course this, again, uh, you quite often get this flight to quality effect come into some of these suburbs. And, you know, one of the sciences I love using, if you like, is taking the principle that some of the older established suburbs uh, have high demand. There's a lot of people who want to live in them. Um, 
and there is no real stock to come to those marketplace. But because people are quite scared quite often to buy uh, pre-construction real estate uh, off the plan and things like that, um, because, you know, quite often that's just about education. Most people just simply aren't educated. Then you get uh, opportunities quite often because these old established suburbs are just naturally high demand, but then you go with stock which as a buyer is misunderstood and not in high demand, but once you own it, again, it joins the pool of uh, you know higher demand in that marketplace. So it's just a really creative way to buy, whether it's a knockdown rebuild, whether it's uh, you know uh, just a brand new opportunity in some of these more established marketplaces. You're not playing the game of competition. You're not having to buy at auction and and sort of over overspend if you like. So I love this stuff. I love sort of looking in these kind of lifestyle suburbs, middle ring suburbs, and you know trying to find opportunity if you like um, for investors. And really, you know, quite often we talk about just sort of buying at that middle ring, getting yourself uh, maybe something with some land content. Um, something, you know, that's, uh, that's going to serve the test of time because it's kind of proven, right? Now, I always explain this one. I mean, I know you guys have probably seen this one before, but, you know, this was a property I bought for $800,000 in 2009. It's worth $1.8 million today. I didn't really do anything other than uh, work on this concept, find a suburb which is highly priced, when it comes to lifestyle, buy it when the investors and the first home buyers are locked out because prices don't work. So remember, investors and first home buyers kind of have a threshold of today up to around seven hundred thousand. So anything over seven hundred thousand dollars, if it's in a decent suburb, generally are going to mean that the mass market being the investor and the first homeowner is not coming. So what does that mean? You're then in an upgrader market. And the concept of an upgrader market is people uh, sell something and upgrade. So they might have bought their first home for, I don't know, 500. It's now worth 700. They're cashing that in. Now got $200,000 plus they may have saved another $100,000. All of a sudden, they're going for something better in an upgraded suburb. So when I bought this, uh, it was an upgraded suburb and it's continued to grow because it just, people continue to upgrade. The crazy part with this property, which I paid 800 for, it's worth 1.8 now. It's on the back of Curl Beach, lifestyle suburb of Sydney. I don't know, 14 Ks to the city of Sydney, if you like, um, is, uh, the cool part about this property is it's probably going to be worth 2.5 into the future because more people want to live in an A-grade suburb than a D-grade suburb. Um, if they, if more people at the top end of the funnel are just making more, but there's less property, then again they fight over this concept of the missing uh, affordable supply of stock, right? And so, again, this is what we, we look for an affordable property in a livable area. You get this aspiration effect, if you like, okay? So um, the next one, if you like, is more macro growth, macro growth, macro growth. We've talked about two micro growth elements, doing flights of quality, doing livability suburbs. They're micro uh, concepts, if you like. When it comes to macro concepts into 2022, um, there's uh, really the idea that uh, I think the best way to invest is choosing the most mission fit cities, right? The idea around mission fit, if you want to understand what that means, on Wednesday, this Wednesday, my podcast called The Urban Property Investor has a podcast coming out, which is all about this, Mission Fit Cities. This is more macro growth, right? 
So the idea is is pretty simple that the bigger the city, um, the more mission fit it is to transform via the great disruption of economics. And of course, we are seeing um, massive disruption constantly, but a lot of the digital disruption, the knowledge disruption, the green disruption, it's all going to feed into jobs um, in, in places. And obviously, when it comes to how Australian economics works, we quite often create jobs off the back of migration. And so um, if, you, if you actually consider the science of how Australian, uh, Australia works, um, we kind of almost bring in migration to uh, create work, if you like. It's a, it's a weird way of creating production of GDP per capita. And uh, I have a podcast coming about, about that in sort of two weeks' time if you want to understand migration economics and the idea that really today some places in Australia exist for no particular reason other than you build a house there. Uh, Because you build a house there, you need services. So you create services behind fundamentally the housing industry. So there isn't actually any industry within many, many cities in Australia. However, to get around that, you bring more people into the country, you put more houses in a place, then you need a Bunnings, then you need a plumber, then you need uh, a roofer, then you need a funeral home because someone's going to die. So you create this sort of town plan magic, if you like, of nothing. They're, um, They're cities, if you like, of no real industry. And uh, certainly, um, you know, I would be very, very wary of some of the regional economies that actually serve no purpose other than uh, to create the job effect. And the job effect is a bit of a placebo. It's just they're, they're, uh, they're just jobs off the back of services. And so they're not, they're not necessarily tied um, to where the real wealth is, if you like, of economics, which tends to be in our more bigger cities, right? And some of our feeder cities and regional cities as well. Not all regional cities um, fall into that category. But I tend to explain to people, like if you are going to buy real estate, try and start with the most mission fit to your budget, the most mission fit where the cycle is looking the best and uh, work your way backwards from there. So in other words, um, if you can't afford Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane, uh, they're pretty mission fit cities. They tend to perform and, and uh, you know, year on year, they tend to offer people employment, right? So there's a, there's a good example, right? So when we look at uh, some of the opportunities out in the macro market, we could start with Melbourne. Melbourne is looking really, really good. Melbourne uh, is at its lowest stock levels in really a very, very long time. You have to go back to uh, 2009, 2010 when stock levels were so low in Melbourne. Bear in mind, Melbourne had a million less people back in 2010 than it does today. So arguably, we are now in in what we would call one of the most undersupplied markets in Melbourne's history. There is really no stock. And we know that when the rental market sort of comes back with migration, migration into Melbourne is one of its key drivers. So you'll get a really good thrust upon the rental market. But ultimately for a Melbourne person right now, it's very, very, uh, there's slim pickings when it comes to real estate very much like this across the country. But when I look at some of the micro things I'm looking to achieve with things like um, the idea around flight to quality, the idea around finding affordable yet highly livable properties, Melbourne stands out. And uh, when it comes to good economics, I think it's got a lot going for it when it comes to getting some... uh, some capital growth going, which is good. 
Uh, Melbourne, uh, sorry, Brisbane. Brisbane's uh, red hot at the moment. There's certainly uh, low levels of stock. Um, I've not seen stock levels in Brisbane this low for a very, very long time. All that stock that was floating around from sort of 2016 oversupply has now been absorbed. And uh, again, stock coming to market is just very, very limited at the moment. So bears uh, really, really well, to be honest with you, as a marketplace of opportunity. So when it comes to two markets to consider potentially for opportunity, definitely uh, Brisbane and Melbourne are looking the goods at the moment. Um, at a sneaky level, you could maybe consider Adelaide and Perth um, as a bit of a sticky beak, but ultimately, if you can still afford it, um, you're probably going to get a better classification of city if you can afford Melbourne and Brisbane at this point in time. So uh, I don't think it should be underestimated, the idea around population economics. Um, some of the future of Australia is, is geared around uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth and Brisbane. And so, again, I think they just score so well when it comes to being very mission fit. So at a macro level, I would start with Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, if you want to drill down even further, I don't mind the look of Perth and Adelaide. Sydney is always great, but it is very, very pricey for the most part. Um, I also don't mind the look of regional uh, New South Wales, which um, some areas like uh, Newcastle seem to do very, very well as well. For the most part, though, Dr. Andrew Wilson, who I get to spend a bit of time with, um, has a prediction, a barometer, if you like. His forecast is anywhere from 8 to 10% growth um, in both. Uh, and he has put Brisbane and Melbourne at the top of his growth barometer. So that's, uh, that's interesting, I would agree, just simply based on the idea of, uh, of undersupply. Those marketplaces just don't have enough stock at all. All right, moving on to the next sort of growth model, uh, mean reversion. Mean reversion is something which I think uh, is going to be play a role in 2022. If you're a bit of a contrarian, you might like the idea of mean reversion. It is more macro than micro. Um, so today we're doing sort of two macro, two micro. Um, macro mean reversion is just the idea that um, something should have grown by now and it's almost got like pent-up demand for growth to be released, if you like. And quite often we see this with apartments versus houses. Um, you know, there is a differential of price between the two. When houses become unaffordable, people then look at the townhouse and apartment section of the marketplace. So quite often you can get um, early in a boom, if you like, houses go up and then later in the boom is apartments go up because the flow on effect fundamentally of, uh, of, of the price gap. And so if we were to track the mean reversion of, for example, Melbourne, um, you can see that there were decades there where the average apartment price were going up around 13%. And then there was eight years where it did nothing. Then you can see from 1997 to 2010, the apartment market did 10.7%. And then over the last 10 years, it's done like 3%, right? So the concept is just the idea that the longer the growth has not come, the more likely it's going to come. And so you're uh, fundamentally not buying other people's capital growth. And so the idea of mean reversion from a macro level is very interesting to me because it's very hard to pick when it comes, but when it comes, you get a slingshot effect of lots of growth at once. 
So if you can imagine, say there's been an average capital growth rate for an area of 5%, just call it, and uh, there's been five years of not having 5% growth, well, that would be 25% growth pent up. And of course, if that is to come, it comes generally over a short period of time. So certainly when it comes to mean reversion, um, I think there's some good opportunities in uh, the apartment section of of the market um, and some of the townhouse section of the market as well. So uh, watch out for that one. Certainly um, with the affordability and the stress levels of people having to pay um, beyond their means to, to buy a house, then the mean reversion will hit the apartment market. And it's probably fair to say, you know, we've crossed the Rubicon when it comes to house prices. Like most houses will be over a million dollars. It's as simple as that. Um, and of course, not everyone can can afford it, right? So um, so that's that's the investment. So mean reversion, if you like, is about shortages, stock shortages and path, past growth shortage. And that's fundamentally what you're buying. You're buying the fact the performance is late. And because it's late to the party, that's fundamentally the opportunity, if you like, when it comes to to real estate. And of course, uh, the final growth model, which I'll talk about today, is the ripple, the idea of the ripple effect. And that uh, in real estate, we often talk about the idea of proximity equals profit. And traditionally in Australian real estate, what that looks like for a lot of people is the idea that if you buy close to the city, uh, you tend to make money. So the idea of proximity for profit for many of our cities is no longer possible because buying close to the city or the best pockets of the city are now uh, pushing people further and further and further afield. So um, what this can then look like is a thing where you uh, change the urbanism and we call this distributed urbanism. In in other words, in Melbourne, for example, uh, there are employment clusters. And so rather than if you can't afford to buy, you know, close to the Bay and close to the CBD of Melbourne where, you know, most expensive real estate is, well, then you need to change uh, the idea of where the jobs are. And in Melbourne, like Sydney, like Brisbane, uh, like Perth, like Adelaide, there are job centres, if you like, or a national employment clusters. And so the idea is that uh, you look for the best possible property close to the a different job center and so the focus changes uh and this happened in sydney you know not many people can buy as investors close to sydney cbd but they can as investors buy close to Parramatta cbd and so again for many of our cities the idea of uh staying focused on buying real estate is uh is possible it's just the CBD within the city has to change because obviously each CBD inside of our cities have different rankings. Some uh, are highly ranked cities and some cities in our, in our greater cities, um, you know, are emerging cities, if you like. And so a good example is Sydney and Parramatta. Parramatta is a, is a skyscraper city inside of Sydney. Sydney CBD is a even bigger skyscraper city inside of Sydney or Greater Sydney. It can be a little bit confusing the way I'm explaining it, but the, the simple concept, if you like, is we just pick a new employment cluster. At the end of the day, real estate is about uh, also about having tenants, so I think it's uh, vitally important to be near jobs, if you like. So we have crossed the Rubicon when it comes to price, and so quite often that might mean we want to be best in class in a uh, less impressive suburb 
Um, but we still want to follow the same logic as buying A-grade real estate. That logic is great, uh, good land, like good position, great location, great suburb, really, really good building. And so if we can bring that to the table, we can do very, very, very well. And of course, um, you know, what that can look like is just making sure that you don't end up buying a lemon. Now, uh, this is the year of the lemon. I personally, personally, am going to sell a property which I've carried as a lemon, which today, um, after going down in value, is back up to what it's worth and a little bit more than what it's worth. And uh, it's time to offload because there's a shortage of stock in the market and people are going to sort of buy things which really are C and D grade properties. They're not great land. They're not great uh, locations and they're not great builds. And so people will pick these up um, quite often uh, for investor reasons, which I don't personally agree with, which is, you know, um, just, you know, sit on land and and let it rot, basically, which, um, you know, carries no yield. Um, as soon as you let your yield drop as an investor, you, you generally can't borrow more money. So um, overall, 2022 is going to be uh, a marketplace where demand still outweighs supply. So uh, should be a good year. Um, and I think probably into 2023, we'll probably see some of those sort of interest rate conversations or other sort of challenges. Probably the biggest risk to the real estate market is is probably more um, you know, political risk with uh, things like uh, APRA sort of stepping in to sort of cool the next phase of growth. But that's cool. That's all very short-term thinking over the long term. If you can buy a, a quality property, quality location, you're going to get a quality tenant, you're going to get a quality outcome. Hey, guys, thanks uh, for sticking with me. I think about, uh, I don't know, 10 of you went the distance. So thank you very much. I know it was impromptu. We'll catch you again um, sometime soon.